It is wonderful to be with you and joining you in worship and now opening God's word with you. As we look around our society and our nation, one of the things that strikes us is how the nation is going through a significant demographic shift. Sociologists tell us that by around year 2040, uh, there will not be a singular majority race group in the United States, or to put it differently, that by 2040, Caucasian will no longer be the numerical majority group in the United States. And for 18 years old and younger, that reality is already here. But while our nation is becoming more and more diverse, another thing that really strikes us and in many ways unsettles us is how this divide and conflict among different racial groups is continuing to deepen. Eight, eight years ago, when President Barack Obama got elected, there was a rather an optimistic uh, phrase that was often being used, that we heard often, and that is that we are now living in a post-racial society. The term post-racial society is something that we don't hear anymore because if anything, this past year's very tumultuous presidential election process has revealed that racial divide in our country, the conflict, has in many ways deepened and widened. Now, given that is our mission field, given that is the context in which we live and serve, what might be God's calling for his people, for you and I, in terms of what we are called to be and called to do. And we want to turn to today's passage to hear from God for that message of hope as we go to Ephesians chapter 2. I would like to read from verses 11 to 19. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 19. And I, would like, I am reading from NIV. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are near, who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
and also members of his household. In verse 11, Apostle Paul immediately identifies the particular thorny issue that he wanted to address in this passage. And that is the ongoing conflict that's happening between Jews and Gentiles, not only in a broader society of Greco-Roman world, but certainly spilling into life of the early church. You see, when, when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and made that marvelous promise to Abraham and his descendants, saying that there are special people for him, his intention was that somehow Abraham and his descendants, the nation of Israel and the Jews, would be used by God to declare God's glory and share knowledge of God to Gentiles, to other nations. That was God's intent. But over a period of history, God's people forgotten, had forgotten that particular calling they had. Instead, they celebrated their special privilege, their special favor from God, taking a great pride in that, but then all forgetting that Gentiles, the non-Jews, are the people to whom they are to reach out and share their knowledge of God with them, that they too might join in, in worshiping this great God. So while their view of themselves was continually being elevated, that we are specially favored people, they began to look at Gentiles as outsiders, as even impure and even unredeemable. So we're told that when Jews get together in their public assembly to worship God, they often offered this particular thanksgiving prayer to their God, saying, God, we thank you for creating us to be human beings and not animals. And God, we thank you for creating us to be Jews and not Gentiles. And that perception began to permeate their social relations with others as well. That they began to gradually look at Gentiles as inferior, as impure, and even irredeemable. This clear understanding of us and them. But not only just differentiating that we are different, but one is clearly better than the other. Now, this is the conflict to which Apostle Paul is speaking into. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian-American theologian, uh, wrote a book called The Exclusion and Embrace, which when he first got published, it became the book of the year by Christianity Today. And in that book, Miroslav Volf identifies that this pattern of creating us and them and excluding them from us is not just a particular issue that Jews had trouble with, but it is rather a human condition of all human fallen beings. Somehow elevating my tribe, my people group, as a superior group of people and looking at the rest as somehow inferior and even impure. 
And Miroslav Volf uh, cautions that God, as God's people, unless we are vigilant, that this mindset that is so pervasive in the outside world can so easily creep into the life among God's people. Now, my family and I immigrated to the United States when I was in sixth grade. We came from Korea, and so I grew up in a Korean immigrant church in the United States. And there are so many things that I am so thankful for the legacy of faith that I've received in my ethnic immigrant church. Learning how to pray fervently, learning how to offer sacrificially to God's work, whether it be time or financial resources. Those are some of the legacies that I have received from my parents and the leaders in the church in which I grew up. Now, about 25 years ago, I was a young pastor, and I got hired by one of the Korean-American immigrant church to be an associate pastor. And, And my particular responsibility was to provide a pastoral care to the growing number of young, second-generation Korean-Americans who were growing up in that church. Now, because they're second-generation, they were born and raised in the United States. They're educated here, so their preferred language was not Korean, but was English. So then I was doing the ministry in English and nurturing this second-generation congregation. And in God's grace, people's lives were being changed. They were growing as followers of Jesus, and they wanted to bring their friends in their school and in their neighborhood and their workplace to this church. So over a period, as this second-generation congregation was growing, the part that was growing most visibly and rapidly was that non-Korean Americans were coming to this English-speaking congregation. And at one point, up to 25% of this Korean American second-generation congregation were non-Korean Americans. Now, one day, a deacon of the church, who is a Korean-speaking first-generation Korean immigrant, came to me and asked me, So, Pastor Peter, what is the name of our church? So I answered, it is so-and-so Korean American Presbyterian Church. And he said, that's right. And we want to keep it that way. And then he said, we did not give generously to this church financially and time-wise to build these beautiful buildings and programs When we did that, we did so for our children and their children, not for other people's children. Our children, their children, us and them. Miroslav Volf is certainly correct when he assessed that our human tendency to always categorize people as us and them is such an innate part of our human nature, that fallen nature. And it was then and it is now. It's something that we need to caution ourselves against, as Wolf points out. 
But then hope is that today's passage, Apostle Paul directly now takes us to what ought to be solution to this particular human condition in which we're caught in, and he takes us to the direct core of the gospel. And I'd like us to now direct our attention to verse 13. And let me reread that portion again. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He takes directly to that very foundational truth of our faith and our understanding of the salvation, and that is what Christ has indeed accomplished on the cross. Now, in verse 16, it reminds us, the Christ's death on the cross reconciled us with God above. In Romans chapter 5, Apostle Paul outlined that before we knew Christ, we were in fact his enemies, the willful, disobedient people who would actively rebel against God. And he said that is tantamount to being enemies of God. And yet, because of Christ's death on the cross, taking away all our penalties of sins, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are now beloved children of God. And what a privilege, what a blessing that is. That is, in essence, the foundation of the good news. But then he says, along with that vertical reconciliation, what Christ has also accomplished on the cross is what we might call a horizontal reconciliation. That by his death on the cross, he became our peace. And any walls of hostility that separates people groups, distrust, violence, and suspicion, all those walls were taken down, according to this passage. So one New Testament scholar noted, the glory and the power of the gospel displayed through the cross of Jesus is what he called double reconciliation. Not just reconciliation vertically, but reconciliation horizontally. My personal observation is that often, not all, but often, so-called mainline churches or more theologically liberal and progressive churches, they tend to focus exclusively on what I would call horizontal reconciliation. So very strong messages on social justice that we are to be kind and we are to be generous with all people. That's a message that you would often hear coming from those congregations. But in doing so, they often neglect that vertical relationship 
we have with God, that vertical reconciliation that took place. And perhaps reacting against that tendency, sometimes I fear that what I, what I sense among many evangelical or theologically conservative churches is focus often is on vertical relationship with God, that reconciliation that took place because of what Jesus did on the cross, that new life we have with our God above through Christ, that we are new creation, born again, children of God, that we look at that vertical relationship with God, but often neglecting and forgetting that horizontal reconciliation that has already been accomplished by our Savior. That part, sometimes we forget. And that is not being fully biblical. That is not embracing the full gospel. This passage and many other passages in the Scriptures powerfully remind us that when Christ died for us on the cross, he has accomplished both, that he reconciled us with a God above and reconciled with us with others. And, and if we grasp that truth, one of the things that we need to then realize is that for followers of Jesus, this reconciliation whether it be racial reconciliation, social economic, whatever dimension of reconciliation, that this reconciliation is not going to be something we will strive for with our human efforts, with our ingenuity or some brilliant programs, but instead acknowledge that it has already been accomplished, but our responsibility is now living into that reality, stewarding that gift that the gospel offers us. So then, as God's people, how are we to think about that? In what ways are we to live into that reality, that new reality Christ has created for us on the cross? And this is the part where verse 19 gives us a way to think about it. So verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. There are two imageries that this, path, this verse offers us. One is reminding both Jews and Gentiles that you now belong to the same kingdom, kingdom of heaven. You have equal citizenship. Reminding both that one is not superior and one inferior, but both now have the same privileges, same rights as citizens of same kingdom. But then he doesn't end there, and he takes his readers to the second imagery, which is more intimate one. And that is, not only do you belong to same kingdom, now you belong to same household, same Family. Now, in a Greco-Roman world, their family system was not like ours, you know, nuclear family as we call it, mom and dad and kids. 
they have more extensive network of family called oikos, a very extended family that even numbered into hundreds. Uncles and aunts and second cousins and, 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 and grandparents and great-grandparents, they would all belong to this oikos, and they would be fiercely loyal to one another and caring for one another. And that is the term Apostle Paul uses. Now, this notion of belonging to the same household was already based, uh, hinted at verse 18 when he said, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Because now we have the same Father, Jews and Gentiles, you belong to the same family. The logic here is a simple one, but powerful one. You and I get to choose who our friend's going to be. But we don't get to choose who's going to be our brothers, who's going to be our sisters. If you have a same father, those who call this person to be father, they are your brothers and your sisters. And for those of us who come from more individualistic culture, sometimes we fail to grasp this simple biblical truth that when we say yes to our God above through Jesus Christ, we are also saying yes to fellow believers as our sisters and brothers, no matter what cultural, ethnic, or racial background they may come from automatically they are our brothers and sisters. Now the question is, if we belong to this new household as God's people because of our faith in Christ, what kind of household is this to be? Now, when we read Apostle Paul's epistles, one of the pictures we see clearly is that many of the Jewish Christians in the early church This was their mindset. Oh, yes, God's salvation through Christ is for all people, not just for Jews, for Gentiles as well. However, when those Gentiles become Christians and join our congregation, they need to follow Jewish religious and cultural customs and regulations. If they don't, then they are still outsiders or they may not be genuine followers of Jesus. And because some of the Jews misunderstood true meaning of Christian by imposing those Jewish cultural and religious regulations on Gentile believers, Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians in particular, responded to that very powerfully. No, no, no. This Gentile believers coming into this household, only thing that, that would qualify them to do so is they're placing their trust in Christ. They do not have to follow additional Jewish cultural laws and regulations. And then in this passage, he gets to that point very directly Look with me on the second half of verse 15. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. In other words, no, God's intention here is not to bring Gentiles to the status of Jews. It's not like you and I in an economy section in an airplane gets upgraded to the first class. That's not the picture here. Instead, through Christ's death on the cross where he broke down all the walls of hostilities, now Christ is creating a one new humanity. No longer Jews or Gentiles. No longer us and them. But one new humanity. That is Christ's purpose for us. And in this new household, there will no longer be inside group, outside group. In this new household, there will no longer be the genuine members of Oikos and then guests in a periphery. But instead, everyone who calls Jesus to be their Savior and the Lord are part of this household. As a way of preparing for this message for Christ Church, multiple campuses, knowing that your mission field, the 10-mile radius, really covers a good chunk of Lake County. I did some demographic research. I particularly looked at the racial composition of Lake County in the year 2000 census and 2010. And according to those two census reports, between 2000 and 2010, in that one decade, Asian, Asian, oh, African-American population grew by 10%. Hispanic population grew by 50%. And then Asian-American population grew by 75%. And currently, 35% of Lake County residents are non-Anglos. And that's the part that will continue to grow in our mission field, in your mission field. And I believe gospel is at work in Christ church. I believe that God is doing the work of transforming lives in and through this church. Which means there will continually be visitors, regular attendants, and those who choose to become members of this congregation who come from non-Anglo backgrounds. That's both a challenge and opportunity. And then the question that today's passage poses to this congregation is what kind of household are you or will you be? Will it be the kind of household in which there will be no insiders and outsiders? There is no imposition of a certain cultural values and mores. Would it be the kind of congregation that invites and celebrates and embraces all God's people, no matter what background they come from? In today's very fragmented, divided world, 
secular institutions, uh, whether it be educational institutions or governmental institutions, whatever it might be, as they think about how divided we are as a nation, often the highest goal that they can talk about or aim for is this thing called tolerance. Let's just somehow learn to tolerate each other. They know that's not the perfect solution, but that's the only thing they can dream about because they don't have kind of resources that we have as a people of God. Because what the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Christ has done on the cross, does not just offer us a way to be tolerant with each other. But what the gospel offers is something far more profound, far more bonding, the reconciled household of God's people where we learn to relate to one another as brothers and sisters because we worship the same Father and we are blessed by the same Father. And as we live out such a life as a church, the world cannot help but to notice what do they have there that we don't have out here? Where do we get and how do we get abundant life, the life of shalom that is so evasive in our world? That would draw more to the gospel of Christ. That would bring more glory to our God in heaven. And it is my prayer that that would be the continuing and growing journey for Christ Church, all its campuses. Let us pray. Our gracious God in heaven, as we acknowledge and celebrate the fact that you are our Father and that your Son's death on the cross not only reconciled us with you vertically, but reconciled us with all people groups. Lord, we celebrate that power of the gospel and that glory of your plan. And now it is our prayer that, uh, that Christ Church in all its campuses, as, as they journey in faith together, Lord, I pray that you would use these congregations as a witnessing community of the gospel, not only proclaiming verbally the power of the gospel, but living out the beauty and the glory of doing life together that shows this world clearly the power of a reconciliation that you have accomplished on the cross. We pray that that would bring more people, draw more people unto you, and it bring glory unto you, O Lord. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.